Now, as we dive into our God's word this morning, we are picking back up in our study in the Gospel of John. So go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 1 this morning. We're going to loop back and pick up a few things that we hinted at last week and go into a little bit greater detail. But as you go through, uh, let me ask you, have you guys heard a term that's been made kind of popular recently uh, about the way that we live our lives called main character syndrome? Have any of you guys heard of this? It's not a technical diagnosis in the American Psychiatric Association or anything like that, at least not yet. But main character syndrome is that idea and that tendency that we all have to varying degrees to put ourselves as the main character in charge of a fictitious life. And you, you, know, you may notice this uh, when you talk with people like other problems, we usually notice it in other people before we notice it in ourselves, Right? You ever walked away from a conversation and the person seemed like, if you were to listen to them for what they said, every driver on the road was out to get them. Every person that they ran into was an idiot who was trying to ruin their day. Everything was against them. The whole world was coming against them. Now, we all have days where it feels like that, but have you ever been around somebody who that, that kind of seems to be the, the course? They're either the hero of every story or the victim of every story and everything's out to get them. You guys know what I'm talking about? David Foster Wallace, who was a a secular author, not a believer, he even recognized this tendency in a commencement speech he gave years ago. I'm going to put this quote up for you because it's a little bit lengthy. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence, right? Everything around me does that. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you're not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you or to the left of you or to the right of you on your TV, on your monitor, or now on your phone, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, so urgent, so real. Isn't that how we kind of live our life as though everything's about us? I mean, now, I'm going to say, as an extrovert, this is especially problematic for me, although I know plenty of introverts who do it just differently. Introverts are usually more passive-aggressive about the way that they make themselves the center of everything, you know, talking about how tired they are because they had to hang out with people or whatever it may be. Extroverts like me do what I did the other day. A friend of mine called. It was his day after his 40th birthday. He's a pastor, a friend of mine, and he called to tell me about his birthday, and he called to tell me about uh, some of the things that were going on in his church, and I'd been praying about some specific things, and he was updating me on all that. Before I realized it, though, he said something that that reminded me of something. And and so then I I had to talk about that. And and then he said something else that reminded me of something, and I needed to to, to tell him about that. And, and, And before long, I got off the phone and realized that I had turned that entire conversation and made it about me when my friend was calling to talk about what was going on in his life, okay? Extroverts in the room, you guys ever do that? We all struggle with it in some way, shape, or form or another of making ourselves the main character of the story. Maybe more subtle for some than others, but it's common for us all. What would life look like if we didn't do that? (laughs) What would it look like if you and I removed ourselves from the center of the story? Here's what I think it would look like. It looked like a lot like the life of a guy named John. Now, this is not the John who wrote the book. 
This is John the, the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as some like to refer to him. He was not actually the first Baptist, for those who have grown up in Baptist churches. However, he did baptize by immersion, so we've got a lot in common with him. Some refer to him as John the Baptizer, just because they want to get away from the denominational affiliation there. But as we look at the life of John, here's what we're going to see. This is a guy who recognized his role that God had called him to play. And what we're going to find is, as we look through John's story, the role that God has called you and I to play is not to be the main character of our own lives. Instead, we're to be a voice who points people to Christ, okay? That's our big idea for today. You are not the main character. Instead, you are a voice who points people to Christ, now, usually we'll read the, the, a long section of Scripture before we dive in. We're going to do it a piece at a time today as we're going through this. So open your Bibles again up to John chapter 1 if you're not there. But my challenge for you today then is to examine your own life and see how big main character syndrome plays. Now, if you look technically, the main character syndrome definition was uh, something that came out of the social media age of you know, the fake lives that people make on TikTok and Instagram. But the reality is we've always done it. I remember a friend of mine in high school who lived the most fanciful, fictional life you could have ever come up with. He told me about all of these things. He had, you know, uncles who had really powerful jobs, and he had been to really cool places and seen all these really cool things, and I don't think any of it was true looking back on it in life, right? We've always done this. We all make fictional versions of ourselves. So what does it look like to take us out of the center, to put Jesus there, and to be able to be a voice for him? That's what we see in John the Baptist, okay? So the first observation that we want to make and the first kind of instruction for us is that if you and I are going to emulate what we're going to see in John the Baptist, the first thing we have to do is we've got to recognize our role, okay? Recognize your role. So as you're diving in, you know, Shakespeare once said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players, right? You guys remember that quote, some of you? Uh, As you're thinking about it, when you're thinking about the role that God has given you to play in the world, Yes, maybe it is all a play, and we're merely actors in it. You're not cast in the lead role, okay? Let's settle that as we go through today. You're not the one who's the most important. You're not the one who's in the middle of everything. That that doesn't mean that you have the lead role. In fact, in following Christ, we find that he is the lead, and we're all the supporting cast that points to him. Now, John clearly understood this. In fact, this is what we're going to see. Go back to to chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. These were verses we read quickly and skipped over last week said, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Okay? Last week we said that Jesus, when he came into the world, like we actually were just singing about him being the light in the darkness, he is the one who brought spiritual enlightenment to the world. All of a sudden we could understand who God was in a way that we'd never seen him before. He was the one that brought this into the world. John was the guy who went before him. You also have to remember that before this, nobody had really heard from God for hundreds of years. So all of a sudden, this guy named John shows up, and he starts preaching, and he starts baptizing, and he starts drawing attention to himself. But as John says here, and as John the Baptist will say as we read a little bit further, he made it very clear this was not about him. He was not the one that was in charge of everything. John came to tell people that the light was coming, but he himself wasn't that light. Jesus is. Now, this is a great place for you and I to start in understanding our role in the world. You are not the light. You're not the Savior. You're not the one in charge. Now, there's some beauty in that. 
there's freedom in that. You know, there's been a lot of decisions that have happened through the pandemic that I was really glad I didn't have to be the guy that made that decision. You know, we've had to make some decisions as a church, but as far as the the decisions that the school board has made, where no matter what they do about masks, they're going to be wrong, no matter who they're doing, you know, whatever side they're going for. Then when we think about the governor and the decisions he's made, the national government, the decisions they've made, whether you like it or not, I'm glad I wasn't the guy that had to make the call. Aren't you? When you think about how we have this tendency to put ourselves as the main character of the world, that also means that it comes down to you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, to figure out every solution to every problem. When you put yourself as the main character of of your life, then you're stepping into a role that you were never meant to play. Whether you're the hero, whether you're the victim, whether you're somewhere in between. That focus on Christ was John's attitude throughout his entire life. Now, the way we do this is is making Jesus known and and making him known to everyone and anyone. We do that by our attitudes towards him and others, by treating people like Jesus did, by speaking truth like Jesus did, and by glorifying God in everything we say and do, by doing our work well, by treating other people well, by being generous with the resources he's given to us. I was talking to a friend of mine who lives down in uh, Shalimar, Florida, and they recently took a mission trip down to those who were impacted by Hurricane Ida. And there's a gentleman there who helps subsidize those trips because God's blessed him with his business, and he has the ability to be able to invest resources into helping people. So they were able to take a laundry trailer of, I think, five washers and five dryers down to be able to set up in one of these areas where power's not yet been restored. And they were also able to give out a bunch of hamburgers and hot dogs and try to feed the folks who were there because there's a gentleman who, this gentleman has resources that God's entrusted to him and he's using them generously to be able to take light to dark places. That's the kind of things that we do is we recognize that we're not in charge of this. Now, if you fast forward to John 3, you'll see that this is something that, that stayed with John all the way through his life. So just turn the page over if you've got your Bible there or scroll over a couple uh, screens if you need to. So John chapter 3, you've got the story about Nicodemus, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. But as we go through, you get to this point where John is starting to get a little bit interesting uh, because Jesus has come on the scene. He's now teaching and preaching. He's showing people what he's doing. And so where John had had this big following, all of a sudden, all of these people start following Jesus instead of following John. So John's disciples say, hey, man, you know, that guy that you baptized, everybody's going to him, and, and they're not coming to us anymore. So here's John's response. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John recognized his role. He's like, guys, I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. Now, the best man is an important part in the wedding. You know, he kind of keeps the groom sane during the whole thing, makes sure that he gets to the church on time or gets to the barn, I guess, now on time, you know, however it is. He does all of these things, and he's there standing beside him. But when the bride comes out those doors and starts walking towards him, the best man takes a step back and says, this is, this is the groom for his bride, right? John says, man, this is what my life was. My entire aim in life was to get people ready and excited so that when the groom showed up, I stepped back. He must increase and I must decrease. Let's think about that in our own life. Now, you and I don't have the same call that John the Baptist did. We've not been called the exact same way to be the forerunner of the Messiah. But at the same time, there's a lot of talk these days about leaving a legacy. 
I know when I, especially when I talk with some of our older adults, you, you really start wondering in the middle of the night as you can't sleep anymore, you start thinking, how are my kids going to remember me? What's, what's contribution am I making to society? Is anybody going to even care that I'm gone? Those can be really unsettling questions, can't they? What if you died and not a single person remembered your name? Now, for most of us, that sounds hopeless, doesn't it? Well, we would hope that people would remember us. Okay, let me, let me ask you real quick. Some of you, you guys can cheat because you've been doing your genealogy, but how many of you know the names of all of your great-grandparents on both sides? Anybody? Three generations already forgotten. Isn't that incredible? But now, how many of you knows that somewhere back in your family, your family started following Christ. So then your grandparents followed Christ. So then your mom and dad followed Christ, and they taught you to do the same. Now, some of you, you're starting it now. You don't have that family lineage. I'm blessed to have a family where my grandfather was, a, was an elder at a church of Christ. He took me to baptisms, and I had no idea what on earth was going on. And I would disagree with some of the things that Granddaddy believed, but at the same time, he modeled for us loving Jesus. In fact, I was at the gym a few years ago when I found out that the trainer that was at my gym was led to the Lord because his mom was led to the Lord by being in my grandfather's small group back in the 70s or 80s. What if nobody remembered your name, but they remembered that you were that guy who was crazy about Jesus, not in an obnoxious way. I mean, let's be honest, we can be weird and we can be obnoxious. But what if they saw in your life something that was different? There was a hope there. There was a peace there. There was a joy. They may not remember that you, who, like what your name was, but they remember sitting in class across from you and, and in that study group, and they remember that you were like calm when everybody else was freaking out about the test because you knew that your identity wasn't wrapped up about whether or not you got your degree. It was settled in Christ. We've got hairstylists in the room. We've got teachers in the room. We've got regular old housewives in the room. We've got retired folks. What if the cashier, or what if the, the waiter or the waitress could never, they never knew you by name, but they knew that you prayed for them and they knew that you talked to them about Jesus and that you didn't yell at them when the food was slow or wrong? See, that's our role. If I die and not a single person remembers the name Sean Couch, but there are people who know Jesus because of what God did in and through me, then my life will have been a success. There may never, in fact, I don't ever want a building named after me, okay? If it ever comes down to it, I don't want a building. I, not that I ever think I'll put some kind of contribution to society where people would name a building after me, but I don't want one. I don't care. It's not about me. Now, like I said, I have days in my conversations where I do make it all about me. But when I'm actually walking and recognizing my role, my role is not to point to me. Your role is not to make life all about you. Your role is to make it all about Jesus. John was aware that he wasn't the Messiah, but he knew his role. So think about your own life. Would it be enough for you if your legacy was simply, I don't remember her name, but I remember that she loved Jesus and she helped me to do the same? Some of you have vague memories of maybe a Sunday school teacher. I don't remember her name, but I remember how much she loved me. 
and how she taught me about Jesus. What if that's you? What if God's calling you to work in the nursery or to work in children's church or to teach in Sunday school so that you can be the person that 50 years from now, that that individual may never remember you, but they remember that from the time they were born, they had people in their life who were praying for them, who were loving them, and who were pointing them to Christ. Could that be your role? See, you're not the light, guys. Although John's name is remembered, it would have been enough for him simply to point others to Jesus. How do I know that? Well, go back to chapter 1. Flip your Bible back over here there. Start with me in in verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? (laughs) Right? So John had been teaching. He'd been baptizing for a while. Things were going. He was drawing a crowd. So all of a sudden, the religious leaders there in Jerusalem say, hey, wait, we got to figure out what's going on here. Who in the world are you? So John says, he didn't deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. I love that he's so clear about that. 21, what then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? Nope, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Me, I'm just a voice. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Now, those of you who are Bible students are sitting there saying, wait a second. Matthew and in Luke, Jesus said that he was Elijah. What's the deal? Well, just so we can kind of deconflict that for a second, they were expecting literal Elijah to come back. And they were expecting him to do things that were different than what God was actually calling John to do. So John says, I'm not that guy. I'm not the prophet you think. I'm not Elijah like you think it's going to be. But when Jesus was speaking about John's ministry, he says he did fulfill those promises about Elijah. He was Elijah. It's just not like you thought it was going to be. Okay? Does that kind of make sense? So that's why John would say, nope, I'm not the guy, because he wasn't like that. Instead, he recognized he was a voice. Now, guys, listen to me. We all have this tendency to think that we're something. And yes, you are a uniquely created individual made in the image of God. You have value, worth, and dignity simply because you were created in the image of God. Not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you ever will do, but you are valuable simply because God created you, okay? However, you're not that special. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. There's, in fact, some of you parents are tortured by watching Bluey like we are. There's a Bluey episode about that not being special thing. Um, It's kind of a, a funny one, actually, if you go back and watch it. But as you look at this, if anybody had a right to make life about them, John the Baptist was the guy. Like, There had been prophecies about this guy for like six or 800 years before he came around. He actually was the one who was declaring that the Messiah was coming. He actually baptized Jesus. If anybody was important, in fact, Jesus, when talking about John after his death, Jesus says that there's been nobody else in history like John. But he said, look, all of that aside, I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Life is not about me. And it's not about you. Recognize your role. You're not the light. You're not in charge. 
What did John say that he was? He was a voice crying out in the wilderness, calling people to get right with God. Now, although, again, his calling was unique, you and I don't have that same prophetic call and voice that John did, but what did we say two weeks ago that we're called to do? You guys remember when we talked about our core commission? Matthew chapter 28, what were we called to do? Put it up on the screen for us. Should be in there, I think. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You don't have the same call that John did, but you're still called to be a voice. You're still called to go out and tell people about Jesus wherever you are, whether that's at Mill Mountain at the coffee shop, whether that's in a dorm, whether that's in a class, whether that's in a doctor's office, it's at your job, or wherever you may be. Your role is to be a voice, to point people to Christ, okay? So now let's flesh out what that looks like. The second thing we're going to draw out of John is that we need to use our voice. If you are a voice that God's called, you need to not only recognize your role, but use your voice. Now, as we look at John, we're going to draw three quick things that we can see out of the way that he worked. Again, our calling and experience isn't an exact match for what John saw and did, but we can draw out at least three different ways to use the voice that God's given us. So after establishing that he wasn't the guy that the world revolved around, John starts pointing people to Christ in a real way. Pick up with me there in um, verse 29, okay? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, if you like to underline things in your Bible, that's one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. And we could have taken an entire sermon just to talk about that. We'll get into a little bit here in just a minute. But here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. Now, pause. Some of you sit there and say, wait a second. John is Jesus' cousin. How did he not know? We know that when his mom saw Mary and knew that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, that the baby leaped in her womb, right, that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. How did he not get this? We don't understand it fully, but although he knew who Jesus was, there's some reason John did not realize until the very moment of his baptism that Jesus truly was the one that God had sent. John somehow missed the fact that he was the Messiah. We don't understand for sure, but the reality is nobody really figured it out until this point. However, he saw Jesus coming and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Picking back up in verse 32. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is, is the Son of God. Now, from what we see of John right there, now, we're not going to see the same kind of thing. You're not likely to ever see the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It's a one-time thing, as far as I can tell. There's a lot of things in Scripture that aren't repeatable, and this looks like one of them. However, we're, we can tell from what John said, there's at least three things that we need to do in using our voice. Number one, talk about who Jesus is. Talk about who Jesus is. Go back to that statement where he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He starts there by saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, some of you may be familiar with the imagery behind what he's saying here, but he's talking about the Jewish ceremony called the Passover. In case you're not familiar with it, let me remind you about it, okay? Back in the day, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt. 
They were captives there. They had been there for quite some time, and God was getting ready to deliver his people. So Moses, the man that God raised to lead up the Israelites, went to Pharaoh and said, God says, let my people go. By the way, for those of you who get that confused, it wasn't Moses saying, let my people go. He was saying, God says, let my people go, okay? So he goes, and Pharaoh says, yeah, mm, I don't think so. So through Pharaoh's obstinance, God sends a series of plagues that get worse and worse and worse. He's showing that he has power over all of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon as he exercises his power over every aspect of creation. Still, Pharaoh will not let God's people go. So it comes to the last plague, the tenth and final one, where all of a sudden God says, I'm going to send an angel through the entire land of Egypt and I'm going to kill the firstborn son in every household. I can't imagine what this would be like. Now, now God did tell his people that there was a way for them to stay safe when the angel came through. They were to take a spotless lamb. They were to slaughter the lamb, and they were to take its blood and sprinkle it on the doorposts of their house. For every home that put their trust in the God of Israel who had the blood sprinkled on the doorpost, the the death angel, the destroying angel, would pass over their home and everyone inside it would be spared. So here, this is a ceremony that Israel has celebrated year after year after year for over a thousand years at this point. So John sees Jesus coming and finally realizes the fullness of who he is. And he says, this is the Lamb of God. All of those lambs that were slaughtered in the Passover, all of those sacrifices that were made, they all pointed to the one who would finally come and be the one to take away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God. By the way, if you want a great picture of this, we're not going to look at it, but you ought to look over in the book of Revelation in chapters 4 and 5 where you see the Lamb of God seated on the throne. It's a beautiful picture. So Jesus was the Lamb of God. Now, we talked at length last week about more things about who Jesus is, right? We said that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is the one who is the source of life. We said that he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the one who is the word of God, that he was God-made flesh, the one who revealed God to us. So if you have any questions about who Jesus is, I'd encourage you either go back and listen to last week's message or come talk with me, and I'd love to sit down with you and explain more. But the first aspect of us being a voice and recognizing our role is that we need to talk about who Jesus is and exalt him as the God that he is. Second aspect of this is that we need to be willing to talk about what Jesus has done. Talk about what Jesus has done. He said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when he says who takes away the sin of the world, this is pulling in another Jewish feast. In fact, does anybody know what Jewish feast was Thursday night? Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was this time, one time a year, where they had multiple sacrifices, but as a part of that ritual, they would take a goat, and the high priest would lay his hands on the goat, and as he would speak over the goat, he would confess his own sins and the sins of the nation. And ceremonially, it was as though he was transferring the guilt of their sins onto the goat. Now, the goat would be led out into the wilderness to take the sins away from the people. Now, interestingly, by the way, rabbinic traditions tell us that they would lead it off a cliff to make sure that the goat didn't come back. That'd be awkward, wouldn't it? The the goat took away the sins, and now it's back. What's that mean? 
So they would take this goat away, and it was a symbol of the fact that one day God would finally and fully remove the guilt of their sin from them. Who did that? Jesus. By the way, that's the idea where we get our, the idea scapegoat. That comes from that picture. Jesus was the final one who would take away the sin of the world. And he wasn't a goat who was just let out into the wilderness and let to wander off the side of a cliff. No, he was, as we talked about last week, God in the flesh, hung on a cross, not to ignore my sin, but to die in my place, to take my punishment upon himself as the final sacrifice for sin. So John recognized, I'm not that important. It doesn't matter about me, but instead I'm going to point you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, nobody understood at that point that what he was actually saying was the sin of the world. We saw that when we were looking back at Acts, the the Jewish people thought that they were the only ones who were really going to be a part of the kingdom of God. But when he said all of the world, that means me and that means you and that means any who will follow him. He was taking away the sins of the world, dying in our place. By the way, in case you don't know the rest of the story, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead to show that he had broken the power and penalty of sin. And now he lives victorious and rules and reigns over all of heaven, all of creation. One day he's going to come back and set it all right. By the way, people ask me sometimes about eschatology and what I believe about the end times. We definitely don't have time to open that can of worms. But here's what I do know beyond any shadow of a doubt. Jesus is coming back. Okay? And I know this for a fact as well. We are one day closer than we were yesterday. All right? I will not be able to get any more specific than that as to, well, yeah, but what about this side? What about? I know he's coming back, and I know we're closer than we were this time yesterday. Beyond that, it gets a little bit interesting. Here's my other question. This is an aside. Okay. As you're thinking about biblical prophecy, and you're thinking about the return of Christ, My question is, why? Okay? We have a tendency to want for Jesus to come back because we're tired of of life, (laughs) right? Like, I I literally told Samantha one day this week, guys, don't commit me. I have no intentions of causing heart. Like, I told her, I don't want to die, but I'm not sure that I want to keep living sometimes. You, know, you guys know what I'm meaning? Like, life is just kind of a hassle, and it's a pain. I'm not looking to harm myself or others, like, so don't, don't have me. Just sometimes you have those moments, though, where you're like, I just don't want to do this anymore. And I'm afraid that sometimes our, our desire to look at prophecy is just because we're tired of it and don't want to keep doing it. Here's, here's my other challenge. Sometimes it's out of fear. We, we obsess about prophecy sometimes because we're afraid of what's going on. If you look deeply into the end of the world, you look deeply into what God says in his word, not just what folks say on TV or on the internet. If you look deeply at what God says in his word, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, is hope. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is coming back. With that hope should be a fervor. If you believe that the signs are lining up and it could be any moment, 
then live like it. Tell everybody you come into contact with about Jesus. Be the loudest voice you can possibly be so that if Jesus came back right now, I've always thought it'd be awesome if he came back while I was preaching. Like, there's nothing I would rather do than be standing here preaching and see Jesus. Like, that would be pretty awesome, right? Oh, hey, I was just talking about you. Let that be the case with whatever you're doing, with your job, with your class, with your roommates, with whoever you're around. If you're constantly talking about Jesus, you have no reason to be ashamed when he comes, if you're living to honor him. So if you're going to look into prophecy, if you're going to look into end times, which you should, it's in the Bible, it's great. Let it give you hope and let it give you passion to say as many saved as possible before he comes, okay? Talk about who Jesus is. Talk about what he has done. And the third aspect of what we see from John about using our voice to honor Jesus is talk about what we have seen. Now, John went through and he saw the Spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove, and you're not likely to see that. Like I said, he had the privilege of physically walking with Jesus and seeing Jesus. You and I don't have that privilege, but at the same time, we see God at work all around us all the time. Let me give you some some pointers on how to look for God at work, okay? Remember, number one, and this is not going to be on the screen. This is kind of a side. Remember that God will never do anything or call you to do anything that runs contrary to his word, okay? So God is never going to tell you to rob a bank, God's never going to tell you to lie on your taxes. Now, if it gets to the point where there's some kind of civil disobedience required, then we do civil disobedience if that's what it comes down to. I mean, I I don't know. But God will never call you to lie, cheat, steal, those kind of things. However, when you see what God's doing around you, in fact, let's go ahead and put this quote up from, from Henry Blackaby and Experiencing God. This is a study that if you've never done it before, I would encourage you to do it at some point. Um, we've done it several times here as a church, and it's been one that's been foundational for me that explains a lot about how I understand how God works. One of the things he talks about is how God speaks today. God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, which is your most sure and certain way to hear from him, through prayer through circumstances in the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. You know what's not on there? Your toaster, okay? Have you guys ever seen folks on the internet who are like, I had a picture of Jesus on my toast. Okay, that's not what we're talking about, right? When we talk about, actually, Alex, go ahead and put that back up for a second. The most sure way to know that God is speaking is when he's speaking in accordance to his word, when what he says comes out of his word and is taken in proper context with what he's saying. So he speaks through the Bible, speaks through prayer. Now, I would love to say that if you pray, God will speak some kind of audible voice and you'll hear him and it'll be wonderful. And I have had the privilege of walking with Jesus for almost 30 years now and he's yet to speak to me in an audible voice, okay? It'd be cool if he did. He could if he wanted to, but that's not how he works. However, as we pray, we see God answer prayers in unique ways. We see God doing things that only he can do. We see lives transform. People who've struggled with sin issues for years, that God finally gives them victory over it, and they don't have to do that anymore, and they can walk, and they can honor Jesus. We see God restore marriages that seem too far gone. We see him do all of these kinds of things, and as we're praying, we look for him to work. There's even times where, like we were talking about on Wednesday night, we we get together with other believers and just being with God in prayer, especially with others, there's just this peace that he gives. 
that doesn't make sense. It's hard to understand or explain. Have you ever seen that? You ever experienced that? By the way, if you haven't and you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you need to take a, a good hard look. It's not all about emotions. It's not all about experience. In fact, that's why you'll notice that circumstances is way down the list, right? Bible, prayer, then circumstances. Because too often we, you know, we look at circumstances first because that's the first thing we see. Oh, yeah, you know, the, my toaster burned this morning, which, you know, that must mean that God doesn't want me to go outside today, <laughs> you know? We do it. I mean, everybody's done it at some point, right? Circumstances come after the Bible, after prayer. But then, yeah, God does work through our circumstances. Like I mentioned to you, when, when Stephen and I were sitting there talking about Jesus and, and talking about what God was doing, there was a young lady who sat down at the table next to us. And I thought, well, this is Blacksburg. This could get interesting, right? Because, I mean, I'm sitting here presenting the gospel, and not everybody in Blacksburg really likes Jesus. And so I didn't know what we were going to be sitting there dealing with, right? So she sits down next to us and doesn't look over our direction, doesn't say a word. So I figure, okay, she's got her hair down. I can't tell. She's probably got her AirPods in. No big deal. We get ready to leave. And she says, excuse me, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to say, I, I overheard. I wasn't trying to listen in, but you know, I, just, I had my AirPods out at one point. I, I heard you sharing the gospel, and, and I heard what God was doing in your life. And I just want to tell you, I'm so excited for you. And I'm so thrilled. You know, all the angels in heaven are rejoicing. And right there, what Steve and I were seeing was God's hand at work in putting another believer. She goes to North Star over in Blacksburg. She's a senior at Tech. I didn't even get her name. But at the same time, she loves Jesus. And God put her at the table next to us so that she could encourage me and Stephen about what she saw God doing and what was going on. Tell people about stuff like that. That's what John said. He said, I have seen and I have testified that Jesus is the Son of God. If you've never seen it, you may not be saved. If you haven't seen God transform your own life, give you peace, to give you wisdom, to give you joy, to give you hope in situations that where it just doesn't make any sense. If you've never had moments where you've been fully aware of the presence of God working and moving and doing things, if you don't have anything to talk about, then it may be that you never have genuinely come into a relationship with Christ. And again, we're not all about experiences. We submit every experience to the authority of the Bible. We submit all of our feelings and say, you know what, my feelings can lie. Following my heart is totally wrong. But at the same time, if, if what God puts in my heart lines up with what's in his word and what we have the affirmation through others in the church, then man, let's celebrate and rejoice in what God's done. Tell other people about it because that's your role. You're not the light. You're not the Messiah. In fact, you may be here today or you may be watching us online and you've realized as you've gone through this, your whole life is about you. Even when you do good things for other people, it's to make you feel better. Now, nobody else may pick up on that, but the reality is Jesus is the one to whom all of our life should point. We're not the light. We're not the life. We're not the Messiah but I know who is. So if today you realize that there's never been a time where you've put Jesus as the center of your life as you should have, then I'm going to give you here in just a moment a time to do that, a time to make Jesus your Lord, to put him in charge, to say, Jesus, I'm stepping back. I'm not in charge of my own life. 
I don't know what my legacy is going to look like. I don't know what anybody's going to think of me, but I want them to know who you are. I want the hope and the joy and the peace that only you can give. I want to honor you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, I know probably most of you in here have done that. There are some of you in here who haven't, and my prayer is that today you will. Most of you in here, though, you've had a time where you've surrendered to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. My question is, are you like, are you really living that out, or are you like those extras that get cast that always try to wedge their way into the scene? You know what I'm talking about? Like, there's, it's been a trope in a bunch of movies and a bunch of TV shows where somebody lands a bit part on something, and they always try to make it bigger than they actually are. Somebody said it's like the entire plot of I Love Lucy. Uh, if you go back to the, the I Love Lucy, you know, she's always trying to make herself the center of everything. If you're living your life that way, stop it. That's not your role. You were never designed to be the center of existence. Jesus is. So recognize your role. Rest in that. And then use your voice to tell about who he is, what he's done, and what you've seen. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes here this morning. I'm going to invite Kirk up to play. We're not going to sing today in response. We're just going to let Kirk play some in the background so that you have some quiet moments here to do business with God. If you're here this morning and you have never come into that relationship with Christ, then I would love to talk with you more about that. I'd love to help you. There's nothing magical that I have, no kind of incantation I'll say or a magic wand that I wave over you. It's rather I would love to help walk with you into that process of transferring your trust to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. If you've never done that this morning, then I would encourage you to come down front in just a minute when when I'm finished praying and we'll talk about how to make that happen. If, however, you are here and you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, are you actively living like you're the center of your life and your world? Or instead, are you honoring Jesus by saying, you know what? It's not about me. It's about him. Guys, again, you have value, you have worth, you have dignity because not only did God create you, he loved you so much that he would die for you. And he was raised to offer you new life and entrance into his kingdom in a way that only he can. You don't have to be in charge. You don't have to be in the middle of everything. Life's not all about you because of who Jesus is. So would you ask God to help you to be a greater voice, whether that's through the attitudes and actions you go to work with tomorrow, the conversations that happen around the water cooler and the waiting room at the nurse's office? What do you need to do to talk about who Jesus is, what he's done, what you've seen? Let me pray for us, and then I'll ask you to respond as God leads. Keep your head bowed and your eyes closed after I'm done praying. Just do business with God. And if you need to talk with me, I'd love to talk with you more. Father, we're so grateful for this day and we're grateful for all that you have done. We know that Jesus is in charge. Forgive us for the times when we try to put ourselves in the shot. We try to take center stage in our own lives. God, help us to step back to make sure that Jesus is exalted. 
it's very likely that the name of Christiansburg Baptist Church, the name of Sean Couch, the name of each person in this room will be lost to history. So God, instead of leaving a name for ourselves, would you help us to exalt the name of Jesus? Not to be the main characters, but to rest in you. We give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory that's due your name. We ask that you move this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.